As Iyanla Van Zant once said, it's important that we share our experiences with other people. Your story will heal you and your story will heal somebody else. At Project Sleep, we believe that your stories matter, which is why we train people with sleep disorders on how to share their stories through our Rising Voices program. This Rising Voices podcast series features a variety of firsthand stories from people living with sleep disorders around the world. Each person's story offers unique and important insights. Welcome to Project Sleep's podcast. Project Sleep is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and advocating for sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. I'm your host, Julie Flygar. We're so glad you're here as we work together towards making sleep cool. On this podcast, all guests express their own opinions. While medical diagnoses and treatment options are discussed for educational purposes, this information should not be taken as medical advice. Each person's experience is so unique, which is why it's so important to always consult your own medical team when making decisions about your own health. If you haven't done so yet, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a Project Sleep podcast episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen so that we can reach more listeners and raise more awareness. Hello, everyone. Welcome. We have Ebony Lay, who will be presenting her story on living with narcolepsy. Ebony Lay is a telecommunications engineer and an identical twin from Leewood, Kansas. She was diagnosed with narcolepsy and cataplexy five years ago. As a trained speaker with the Rising Voices program, she is sharing her story to help separate facts from myths and spread awareness about this often misunderstood neurological condition. And I'm just so excited to introduce you guys today uh, and um, have you hear Ebony's story. So with that, please take it away, Ebony. Thank you, Julie. Hi, my name is Ebony Lay, and I've lived in Kansas for most of my life. I was raised in Leavenworth, Kansas, briefly crossing the border into Missouri after high school to attend college. As a kid, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a veterinarian, a writer, or a detective like Encyclopedia Brown. My twin sister, who's older by seven minutes, and I are mirror twins. So to the most discerning eye, we don't really look alike unless we're face to face. For everyone else, my parents thankfully color-coded our outfits when we were little. Even as we grew up and became in charge of our own wardrobe, we would find ourselves subconsciously dressing in our specific colors. I was a smart egg, but an odd duck. I recall when I was about six, one day, I saw a spider in the front door of my house, and upon my retreat, my knees buckled and I fell face first into the doorknob. At the time, I thought I had arachnophobia because seeing spiders seemed to lead to injury. Also, as I was growing up, when I was overjoyed, excited, or just merely amused, people would come up to me and ask me if something was wrong because my smile would vanish. It seemed impossible for me to carry items and laugh at the same time. At the time, I simply thought that I was clumsy. And at the same time growing up, I really can't remember a time that I didn't feel sleepy. But as long as I had something to do, I could stay awake to get it done. 
as I got older, I developed ways to get done with things faster, or I would just give up on them after a point in time, solely to sleep. One time, when I was really tired and I was talking with a good friend, I could hear the words that she was saying, but I had no comprehension as to what she meant, even though we were speaking the same language. And this wasn't a one-time thing. When I was in middle school, my mom went to my doctor about me sleeping more than usual. And after ruling out mono, lupus, or anemia, the doctor concluded that it was most likely depression. I started therapy and antidepressants, which while it did seem to help somewhat, it had little effect on me feeling less sleepy. Over time, I just became convinced that I was lacking motivation or I was just lazy. I remember there was one evening when I was 17 and having a sleepover with my friends. We were all piled in me and Amber's bedroom with girls sitting and laying wherever they could find space on either one of our twin-sized beds. I don't remember nodding off at the time, but when I woke up, the air felt heavy and I was uncomfortably hot. I could hear my sister and my friends still laughing and talking, yet at the same time, their conversation didn't make sense to me. I couldn't move my arms or my legs as if I wasn't covered by a thin blanket, but I was bound in restraint. No matter how much I tried to move or make a sound, I could not get anyone's attention. I have no idea how long I laid there under the sweltering heat, bright lights, surrounded by my peers talking far too loud. Their laughter even seemed directed at my distress. What I do know is in the instant that I was able to open my eyes and sit up, the room was suddenly dark. There was no blanket smothering me, and I was alone. I just waved it off as some weird nightmare. Around 18, my unexplainable clumsiness just seemed to get worse, with my knees buckling whenever I got nervous. I brought this up to my pediatrician during a physical, and he checked my reflexes, and because those were good, he said he wasn't too concerned about there anything being wrong neurologically. And since he didn't worry, neither did I. I had always been busy and active in high school. I worked part-time in the library my junior and senior year. I was active in drill team, the drama club, and I was president of our thespian society in my senior year. I never let my sleepiness interfere with it all, though my friends knew I would only be available for six out of the seven days of the week because I would need at least one day to just sleep to function for the next week. At school, there would be places where I knew I could slip away to nap without getting in trouble, like the couch that was stored backstage year-round. Also, whenever it was slow at the library, I could pretend to study. Instead of being hard at work studying, I was snoozing. After high school and a couple of years of college, I started working mostly freelance and temp to full-time staffing gigs until I was hired by a telecom company that provided me with on-the-job engineering training. 
before I became an engineer full time, I was considered a hard worker, but a terrible employee because at every job I struggled arriving to work on time, or I would be warned or I'd get in trouble written up for taking too much time off for doctor's appointments or calling in sick randomly because I needed to sleep in that entire day. By 31, the sleepiness that had been merely an inconvenience became overwhelming to where staying awake, even if I wanted to be awake, was becoming harder and harder for me to do. Despite feeling exhausted all the time, I also started to dread sleep because every instance I would find myself waking up unable to move unable to speak and not sure if I'm even breathing. I would sometimes see the front door of my apartment swing open, the darkened hallway brightening as the sunlight would break through the open door and I would see the shadow of a large man approach as he would storm past the foyer into the bedroom. Just as that figure approaches the bed and is upon me, they vanish and I can move again. I began hearing alerts on my phone that I reserved for emergencies, only to find that there were no new notifications on my phone waiting for me. Even after removing the ringtone from my phone entirely, I would still find myself startled awake by that distinct chime. By now, I was convinced that I was going insane, but I was too afraid to say that out loud to anyone but I still went to my primary care doctor in hopes that I could just find some way to sleep undisturbed through the night. And it was then that she had referred me for a sleep study, but to rule out sleep apnea. When the sleep study came, the sleep technician reviewed my, the answers from the questionnaire that they provide you at the start of the sleep study. She left and then she came back into the room because she wanted to talk to me about checking yes to whether I felt weakness when I was upset. I paused and then answered truthfully, wondering if I had checked the wrong box. But then she pulled up a chair and explained that it was a possible symptom called cataplexy. Then she had asked me if I had heard about narcolepsy. I nodded, thinking back to the movies that I've seen. Then she asked if I thought I could have narcolepsy, to which I scoffed and assured her that it's okay. I could stay awake if I chose to. Before wiring me up, she took the time to explain what narcolepsy was. And like magic, she began defining all of the weird experiences I'd been having over the years that I had been too afraid to tell anyone because I feared that I'd sound crazy. When I had admitted as much to her, she gave me a hug and told me that it's okay. It's not all in my head. The sleep study confirmed what she had already suspected. I was officially diagnosed with narcolepsy with cataplexy at 32 years old, about 26 years after first experiencing symptoms. The symptoms vary by person, but they might include excessive daytime sleepiness, periods of extreme sleepiness during the day that 
feels comparable to how someone without narcolepsy would feel after staying awake for 48 to 72 hours. Cataplexy, which is a striking sudden episode of muscle weakness that's usually triggered by strong emotions such as laughter, exhilaration, surprise, or anger. The severity may vary from a slackening of the jaw or a buckling of the knees to falling down. The duration may be for a few seconds or several minutes, and the person remains fully conscious the entire time, even if they're unable to speak during the episode. And that's kind of like with my arachnophobia or people thinking that I'm upset even though I'm in a great mood or dropping things when I'm laughing. That's cataplexy. Hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations. Those are the visual, auditory, or tactile hallucinations that people get upon falling asleep or waking up. These can be frightening and confusing. Sort of like the mystery intruder or the phantom ringtone. Sleep paralysis is the inability to move for a few seconds or minutes upon falling asleep or waking up. It's often accompanied by the hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations. What happened at my sleepover and the instance when I couldn't move when someone was breaking in. Then there's also disrupted nighttime sleep that unlike public perceptions, people with narcolepsy do not sleep all the time. It's just that the timing of sleepingness is off with narcolepsy. So one might fight sleepiness during the day, but struggle to sleep at night. The diagnosis typically includes a 24-hour sleep study that includes a nighttime portion, the polysomnography, and a daytime nap portion, which is the multiple sleep latency test, to record one's brain waves. The diagnosis is mainly based on how quickly and frequently one goes into rapid eye movement, aka REM, the dream stage sleep during those tests. Narcolepsy is a chronic neurological condition that impairs the brain's ability to regulate the sleep-wake cycle. It affects one in 2,000 people, 200,000 Americans, and 3 million people worldwide. There's currently no cure for narcolepsy. There are two forms of narcolepsy, narcolepsy with cataplexy and narcolepsy without cataplexy. Recent research suggests that narcolepsy with cataplexy is caused by a, a lack of hypocretin, a key neurotransmitter that helps to sustain alertness and regulate the sleep-wake cycle. Less is known about narcolepsy without cataplexy. The treatment for symptom management varies widely by person, and it often takes a very long time to find the right combination of treatments. Those treatments may include wake-promoting or stimulant medications to increase alertness in the daytime, sedative medications to increase deep sleep at night, antidepressant medications to decrease occurrence of cataplexy, and scheduled daytime naps 
coping strategies that varied widely by person, but may include social support such as meetup groups and social media, improvement in general health and wellness through sleep hygiene, diet, and fitness. For me, the combination of medication and naps has helped me accomplish what I need to during the day. There was a point during my treatment where I had to learn to temper my expectations because I thought that, hey, now I have options that will fix me and I'll become the person that I always knew I could be, only to find out that the treatments only helped manage the symptoms, but that I'd never be completely free of them to cope. Counseling and joining support groups helped me the most because often to this day, the hardest struggle I have is with the pressure that I put on myself. And finally, when I went back to my primary care doctor after getting a diagnosis, I was asked to educate my doctor and her nurses about what narcolepsy was. And it felt like I was being put on the spot since I was still learning about what narcolepsy was myself, and I had come to her looking for further guidance. So while I'm thankful that she had eventually sent me for the sleep study, I had brought up being constantly tired with her many, many times before. So I really think it's important that healthcare professionals, especially primary care doctors, be made more aware of sleep disorders and their symptoms. In the years since my narcolepsy diagnosis, I've learned that coping with narcolepsy entails finding a balance of being flexible while also keeping to a good routine. For example, when I had finally decided to attend my very first narcolepsy network conference that was being held in Indianapolis, Indiana that year. I knew that a long road trip would take a lot out of me, but I could not justify going to the airport to fly. Luckily, I had already experienced weekend commutes to St. Louis by train, and I had been curious about what it would be like to take a longer train ride by a sleeper car. Ever since then, Amtrak has been my first choice travel option since. And so far, I've been lucky that the Narcolepsy Network conventions have seemed to pick cities with connections to Amtrak stations. Uh, when my cataplexy makes a rare appearance these days, patience and having a good sense of humor keeps me going. Socializing in the evening is still difficult. In part that if I'm invited out for food and drinks, I can't really partake because I've already started fasting so that my bedtime medication is more effective. At my previous job, my coworkers used to sometimes express frustration that they could never reach me around lunchtime, often forgetting that my lunch break coincided with my scheduled afternoon nap for which without it, I wouldn't be able to finish out the workday. 
I have accomplished much long before my narcolepsy was ever diagnosed. I edited an online magazine that had invited me to anime conventions in Los Angeles and Seattle. I was able to support my twin sister when she was discharged from the army with a leg injury that needed multiple surgeries. She was later diagnosed with complex regional pain syndrome, another neurological disorder that, oddly enough, is affected by the same area of the brain as narcolepsy. We're always comparing what symptoms we have that are similar but different. That I worked myself up from an admin assistant to a telecom detail engineer within a few years is something that I'll always feel immense pride for. I want to travel and have a chance to meet other people with narcolepsy because knowing I'm not alone in this encourages me to move on while also giving me the strength to accept that when there are moments where I have to give in to sleep, that there's no shame in asking for help. In spite of living with narcolepsy, I've worked in the competitive STEM field which helped me find that I love to investigate, research, and implement solutions. I'm sharing my story because representation matters. Like with my narcolepsy diagnosis, I had not considered engineering as a career option for myself because I did not see any women like me involved or being successful in that field. Since the only examples that I'd seen of narcolepsy were misrepresented or from the extreme end of the very broad range of narcolepsy symptoms, I never once considered the possibility that I could be someone with narcolepsy as well. Because of the low awareness, even among physicians and misperceptions, there's an average eight to 15 years between narcolepsy symptom onset and diagnosis. For me, it was 26 years. It's estimated that the majority of people with narcolepsy are currently undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. I'm sharing my story as a part of Rising Voices, a program created by Project Sleep to empower patient advocates to share their stories and improve public understanding of narcolepsy. Thank you for listening to my story today, and I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. Yay, Ebony! Great job. Thank you so much for sharing today. I know everyone is clapping, and I'm going to kick off with a few questions for Ebony. You, I think a really uh, part of your story that actually I've never really asked you that much about was, so originally when you first heard the word narcolepsy, you thought that, well, that term didn't really resonate with you because you thought you were- Yeah, it just didn't click. Yeah. How did you, what was your journey like as far as moving towards getting social support, finding the narcolepsy network conferences, you know, even getting counseling? Like how did- did you just know that you, you needed that support right away or was there a journey? Uh, no, actually it was a combination of having a strong support base within my family and also that my um, sleep doctor was very, very encouraging of me reaching out to Narcolepsy Network and finding a support group and 
with the stress of my full-time job at the time, I was already taking counseling for that. So it just kind of segued into getting counseling that was finding ways to cope with that on top of coping with narcolepsy as well. I think that is really interesting to hear because my own experience was a little bit different, but kind of similar in that it wasn't originally for the narcolepsy. <laughs> I got counseling because I, they thought I might have depression before they realized very, you know, very soon thereafter, like within a week that I actually had narcolepsy with cataplexy, but I, I didn't think I was depressed. I felt really tired, but I still went to a yeah, counselor. I, I never really felt sad at all. It was just more of a frustration that I never had the energy to get everything done that I needed to get done. Yeah. And that kind of ends up getting us to get counseling. So yes. one of the messages I try to bring now to sleep doctors is that, you know, let's not make it a mistake <laughs> or yeah. you know, <laughs> that, uh, that we end up getting counseling because it can be so helpful. So I really liked hearing your experience about that. Um, yeah. and, that. and thank you for sharing that because it's just really important for all of us um, to hear. So we do have a question from Kennedy uh, who asks, what do you think we could do to spread awareness to healthcare professionals of, about narcolepsy and other uncommon disorders? Well, I know that what we've been doing with NIH with finding, getting funding to have more awareness programs that are geared toward medical professionals. One of the things that we had shared when we were doing the rounds with our representatives where they were showing the info fact sheets that they had created in the past that they gave to primary care doctors and just making sure that especially for people who may have been in practice for decades and, you know, they might have not had a more condensed look at sleep disorders that, or, you know, like that might have just did a brief, you know, once over of it when they went to their class or it, you know, that they didn't have the most recent information that was out there at the time that they were in medical school. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Kennedy. Uh, there's so many different important ways to approach awareness. And I think everyone's efforts matter and it's not going to change overnight, but we are making advancements. Uh, so what Ebenezer is, is talking about is a very high level approach, which is working on advocacy to get the federal government to fund sleep awareness work. And that will be, hopefully, <laughs> um, we've been working very, very hard on it. Those efforts are important. The Rising Voices program, a lot of our advocates are speaking to people in med school, nurses school, nursing school, uh, pharmacy uh, schools. And, um, but those are just two approaches and it's not, there's just so many different ways that we need to raise awareness through the media and through individual touch points. So yeah, I guess, you know, I could talk about that all day, um, but there are, you know, great nonprofits, including Project Sleep, uh, Narcolepsy Network, which Ebony's mentioned, along with Wake Up Narcolepsy and the Hypersomnia Foundation. Those are some of the major ones in the United States that are working a lot on awareness and then um, other ones around the world as well. So definitely check out what we're doing and, and anything you can do to even just tell one person um, is so yes. important. And then also um, being 
your own advocate, like even being put on the spot with my Prairie Mary Care doctor, it was a chance for me to actually put in her mind of what, you know, the symptoms that, you know, she had seen in me over the years that got overlooked that she could go in her mind that if she ever has another patient that is struggling similarly that, you know, maybe the next course wouldn't be to try a new antidepressant or something like that, but to go in for a sleep study. Exactly. Actually, I never went back to the primary care doctor that totally missed mine. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I really should have because um, that would have been great to educate her. What do you think made you want to get involved with the Rising Voices program? You did? <laughs> it was um, because when I had met you, it was at a very, I was kind of like a, at a crossroads in my life where I was getting to that point where I was almost okay with having narcolepsy, but I still hadn't found my voice to where I felt comfortable of sharing that with other people. Like it, I still kind of felt that stigma around it. So I really didn't want to say, this is why I am the way I am. And, but then I had met you and at first, I just wanted you to sign my book and, you know, but you actually had asked me about my story and I don't know, it just kind of like came out in the spigot and you were like, you know, I have this program <laughs> and doing the program, it kind of helped me find that comfortable space where I could actually share what happened to me and not see it so much as a horrible thing but it was just an experience that I was able to overcome and that something that I cope with day to day and it's not something that anyone should be ashamed of okay well I'll try not to cry <laughs> that's so meaningful thank you for you know talking to me and and like sharing it because I just I'm so sick of my own story and I love hearing everyone else's and um, so yeah. it's just such an honor to work with you and to work with other advocates. So I'll try not to get all emotional. <laughs> it's just so, so cool. And it's so meaningful. I'm so yeah. glad that you're part of this badass crew of advocates. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's just, we're all, it's just interesting how it brings these, when people ask me now, like, well, would you just take away narcolepsy if you could from your life? It's kind of a challenge because it also has brought to me this community that I never had before, you know? Right. And I've met and so many other... amazing people. It's just so amazing what we've all overcome in our different fields. And, you know, everyone's just so persevering that it just makes me feel proud that I'm a part of this group. Well, those are beautiful words to end with, I think. I don't think you can top that. So yeah. thank you so much, Ebony, for sharing. I'm just so grateful that you're part of this. Thanks, Ebony. The Project Sleep Podcast is produced by Carver Sound Productions, 
For more information on podcast production services, visit carversoundproductions.com.